on the continuum of peas in the right order to ticker tape parade. Hey, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes. And instead, get up close and personal with who they really were. I forgot all the rest of that intro. That's fine. That's fine. That's good. That's good enough? Sufficient. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, do you know what else is hard to ignore right now? What else is hard to ignore? <laughs> Sub-zero temperatures. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It is, it is so cold. And you do not like being cold. Oh, I hate it. No. I, yeah, grew up in the South. I think, like, 40 degrees without a sweater is cold. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be almost negative 40 wind chill right, yeah. this week. It's so cold that even our dogs, who just so consistently enjoy their walk, get all their energy out every day, multiple our, times a day. Our dogs will go to great lengths to mess up our day in order to get their walks. Right. It's like they know when a Zoom meeting is about to start. <laughs> yes. And, and they forget all sense of time. But they they won't even go outside. Like, no, they'll walk outside they'll and they'll walk stand outside. there. Yeah, and one will then sit on his back, pause, and then fall into the snow. Like, you know, I had to then pick him up. He's not a small dog either. <laughs> no, larger than he should be, in fact. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's kind of my reaction to this same weather. Just walk out, seize up, fall over. <laughs> Expect somebody to carry me back inside. I can vouch for this after, I don't, what is this, our 12, 14, 13? 15 minutes. Uh, what? How many minutes have we been married? Yeah, right. Yeah. A decade and a few years on to that, I have never seen you react positively or even like neutrally <laughs> to, to temperatures that make you uncomfortable. No, no. Only five more weeks of this. Yeah. According to... Uh, Punxsutawney Phil. Oh, that's his name. We did uh, remember. Oh, no. Like eight weeks, I think. Right? No, it's six weeks. Six weeks of winter. We had this whole banter last week. That's right. So five yeah, more weeks. My man's Phil. <laughs> Bring him back in. Yeah, fuck Phil. No. <laughs> I want the winter to be over. Now that we're done talking about the weather, mm-hmm. you want to talk about the podcast this week? Oh, sure. Yeah. Why not? I oh. mean, I guess that's why we're here, right? We have a... Uh... We have a special request this week. We do. This week's hero was actually sent in via the website. Someone heard us, went to our website, and said, Hey, would you please uh, feature this person so I can know whether or not to take his poster off my wall? Uh, spoiler alert, yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Take it down now. <laughs> and by the end of the episode, you can decide whether or not you want to put it back up. There we go. Yes. So this week's hero is Mr. Howard Hughes. What do you, Audrey, know about Howard Hughes? So very little. I know that at one point, like 10 years ago, Leonardo DiCaprio was in a movie about him. Yes, yes, that's true. And they have... (laughs) It's his life story. Oh, oh, great. So he was in a a movie about him. Mm -hmm. About, about him. And I have this, like vague association with blimps for some reason like i have no idea why but when i hear the word (laughs) the name howard hughes i think of blimps there is one blimp in this story and it is a minor (laughs) character so the fact that like you have that association is not like 
reasonable. Listen, I don't know how many uh, stories feature a blimp, even in minor <laughs> roles. They stick out. Okay. Uh, fair? I saw I saw a TikTok last week that said there are only 25 blimps in the world. That's true. And that's such a small number. Yeah. And so if there is a at one of those. At the time, there were even less. So really, proportion of person to blimp in this story <laughs> is kind of way off. Out. Way <laughs> off from modern times, honestly. All right. Well, uh, teach me about Howard Hughes. All right. Let's dig in. Howard Hughes was born Howard Hughes <laughs> on December 24th, 1905 in Humble, Texas. You know what that means? It is time for Elliot's Geology Corner. <laughs> Give the people what they want. Yes. So, born in December, Howard's birthstone is turquoise. Mm -hmm. It's a blue to blue-green material. It's actually hydrated phosphate of copper and aluminum. Learn something new every day. means it has water and phosphoric acid and copper and aluminum. (laughs) That's what I know. Uh, It's been used as a gemstone actually for thousands of years. Many Americans know that Native Americans were using turquoise um, over 2,000 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. But in other parts of the world, uh, China has been a minor source since about a thousand years earlier than that, a thousand years BCE. Uh, ancient Egypt, King Tut used it about a thousand years BCE uh, ago, but it was actually used in Egypt as early as 3000 BCE. Hmm. And if you go to Bulgaria, of all places, the earliest beads were found as early as 7,000 years ago, 5,000 BCE. Wow. Bulgaria coming in hot with the turquoise. Yes. <laughs> not, not what I would have guessed at the top of my list. But you know what? Good for you, Bulgaria. So as I was saying, Howard Hughes uh, was born in Humble, Texas. Uh, his parents were pretty wealthy. His dad had started an oil drilling supply company. Mm. So they made like drill bits for the Texas oil fields. Yes. It was called like the Hughes Tool Company. It's always one of those like really unexpected pieces of the industrial process that people get super rich on. I one of my friends in college, her family was extraordinarily wealthy because like 50 years before they had somehow gotten an almost monopoly on this like very specific piece of hardware that you need for kitchen sinks. Wait, what? Yeah, and if you just, like, if you have a monopoly on the kitchen sink washer, (laughs) you're rolling in it. Got that kitchen sink washer money. (laughs) You do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, someday, someday, Mm -hmm. we can all dream. Well, that's what it was like. He was doing very well, and they had little Howard here. So we're going to be talking about mental health a bit here. And usually we have this disclaimer where, you know, we don't want to make mental health diagnoses or assumptions retroactively on the person. But just know that for the next section and and towards the rest of the episode, when we start to speculate some, uh, it's actually because after Howard Hughes died, his estate was very curious about kind of what he his behaviors were driven by towards the end of his life. So they had the CEO of the American Psychiatric Association actually performed what they called at the time a psychiatric autopsy, which meant that they went back and he did hundreds of interviews with people in Howard Hughes' family, his staff, his associates, to try to reconstruct the things that were kind of shaping his behavior towards the end of his life specifically and then all through it. Even though he was never diagnosed 
at all during his life. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an unusual amount of confidence retroactively for kind of figuring out what was going on behind the scenes. And a lot of it, surprise, surprise, definitely started in childhood. Definitely started with his mother. It all comes back. <laughs> all comes back. Uh, as a as an aside, psychiatric autopsy is a bitchin' name for a band. Somebody's <laughs> looking. There you go. Or a podcast. Start a podcast. Psychiatric autopsy and speculate wildly. As a son born to a well-to-do family in the Texas oil money, his mother had a lot of time to spend doting on him. And she, from an early age, was concerned about his health. She was worried that he would catch polio, which was a major health threat of the time, mm -hmm. but also that he would just pick up all kinds of germs, unspecified, mm. like just ambient germs in the environment. And as she got more and more concerned and more and more um, compulsive with checking and preventing disease, mm. she would spend time every single day, quote unquote, checking him for diseases by like physically inspecting him and like checking his health. And as you can imagine, you do this to a young kid for years and years, day after day. Uh, they start to internalize that. Mm. She also got very controlling about what he was allowed to eat mm. and what he's allowed to touch. He ingrained these behaviors very deeply. By the time he was an adolescent, at one point, he suddenly came down with paralysis. And it lasted for several months. Mm. So they took him to all of the best doctors they could find. But after a few months... The symptoms disappeared. Okay. And the entire time that he was paralyzed, they could find no physical cause for this. Okay. And so retroactively, one of the hypotheses is that he had this overwhelming psychosomatic yeah. uh, pressure and anxiety that like he was in danger. And the way that manifests was just his body completely shutting down and withdrawing. Yep. And so very early on, he established this pattern of when things got to be too much and too much pressure and too much anxiety about these germs and his health that he would just shut down and withdraw. And this coping mechanism stays with him throughout the rest of his life, uh, popping up at relatively inopportune times. I too have that coping mechanism, but it lasts for like six minutes instead of six months. Okay. Okay. Just a, just a quick depression nap here and there. <laughs> Fit it in while I can. Don't move. Regroup. Then let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just imagine if you also had uh, hundreds of millions of dollars at your disposal to indulge in your worst impulses. And we're starting to approximate what Howard Hughes' life was like. Oh, wow. Yeah. My worst impulses are not depression naps. <laughs> <laughs> That's me at my best. <laughs> Treating the issue instead of ignoring it. Uh, well... <laughs> This was not Howard at his best. He begins to get into these patterns. And then as if to reinforce all of his worst fears, uh, when he is 16, his mother dies unexpectedly. Ah. Two years later, his father dies of a heart attack. Oh, no. So here he is, 16 years old, the heir to this pretty big fortune, mm -hmm. but legally not an adult until he's 21. What's 21? Is that part of his trust? My guess is actually that I haven't I haven't looked up this part, but I think what happened was it was either a combination of his trust or it could just be that general legal adulthood varied state to state. And it wasn't mm. standardized around 18 until like the draft 
for the Second World War, the First World War. Or, or this would be after the First World War. So yeah, probably at some point later, it became standardized with the, I think the Highway Transportation Safety Bill made it the drinking age at 21. And I think adult was Vietnam before that or World War II. Wow. Anyway, yeah. all that to say, he was not considered an adult until he was 21. He was considered still, you know, a ward of his family. But he had all these family members who were coming after his part of the company because he was supposed to get three quarters of it. Yikes. And so he goes to a court. He gets emancipated at 19 okay. and buys out all of his family members that are like bustling around. And frankly, because he's the controlling share member, they're like, sure, why not? They take it. So he inherits about a million dollars in his money, which... Okay. And this is like 1920 money? Yeah. Well, 1921, yeah. So, so it is $15 million today. Okay. A lot of money. Not... I mean, life-changing fortune, yes. Not fuck you money. Not fuck you money, right? Okay. Uh, $15 million is enough to like live modestly if you put it in savings for the rest of your life. But that is not what this man does. No. Not at all. He takes Hughes Tool, and he looks into the books, and he gets into the business, 19 years old, and he's like, this is fucking boring. I'm going to Hollywood. I think a lot of us have that impulse. Yes. But not all of us have $50 million in that impulse. No, but some of us do have $200 worth of podcast equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he keeps control of the company, but he decides he would much rather live in L.A. and live the glamorous life. He picks an accountant and he's like, you be in charge of this oil no. drilling stuff. I'm going to L.A. And he does. He also, at this time, drops out of Rice University right when his father dies. And he marries Ellen Rice, who coincidentally is the great niece of... Mr. Rice, who Rice University Whoa, named after. Wow. And he's like, come with me to Hollywood. And she's like, yeah. So he's got money. He marries into money. He gets to Hollywood. And he's like, this is amazing. This kicks off the two major loves of his life, which are movies mm -hmm. and flying. When he gets there, he's playing golf one day. And this plane comes, like it flies past the plane. Like it's a biplane. It tips its wing to him. Mm. And he's like, oh, that was cool. That was cool. So he goes and he finds the pilot. And he's like, I will pay you $100 a day. Whoa. Which is basically, today, again, $1,500 a day to wow. teach me how to fly. The pilot's like, okay, sure, yeah, why not? That sounds great. And so he starts learning to fly at the same time. But we'll get to some of that in a bit. So he gets there, and he's going to be a big shot producer, right? He's writing the checks. He basically just writes the checks, finds the directors, makes the calls. And his first movie is a disaster. Mm. Absolute shit show. Commercial failure. But he learns pretty quickly what went wrong, thinks he's got it figured out. His second movie is a huge smash hit. Makes a ton of money off of it. And his third movie is a huge smash hit and wins an Academy Award for Best Director. So, like, figures it out pretty quickly. Wow, yeah. He's got the recipe. Yeah, and he went because he loved movies, and it really kind of played into his strengths. He was a lover of cinema, and he could figure out all the things that would make a good movie, and he could write the checks to back it up, too. He ends up having three other films that are nominated. Makes dozens of them. Uh, mm. Three other films that are nominated for Academy Awards. In 1932, he produces a movie called Scarface, which is... The original Scarface. Sure. Uh, it's the it's like a black and white movie, but it's about gangsters. It gets delayed a bunch of times because he's making it just like incredibly violent. And there's like some censors at the time who aren't quite enforced. And he's just like, no, you know, he, he fights with them and he gets past the censors. And he gets this version of a gangster movie out that just like is incredibly violent for the day. And people eat it up. It's just like they've never seen anything like it. It's still considered one of the best gangster movies of all time. He bankrolls crazy plane films like where there's air battles that like... Like, he will reshoot 20 times just to make sure the clouds are right in the background. Whoa. And he spends, like, $8 million of his own money, which is just going to exorbitant lengths, and he's very successful at it. Um, his wife, we brought, Ellen Rice, is 
is just completely ignored this whole time. <laughs> he's like, as soon as he brings it there, he just, he's like, uh, this is amazing. I've got planes. There's all these Hollywood starlets he starts sleeping with. She just leaves. He just tries to sleep with essentially every Hollywood actress he possibly can. Uh, is he cute? I don't even know what he looks like. He's rich. It doesn't matter if he's cute. He has I a mean, mustache. Here's a, he, I'll describe him to you. Okay. He has a mustache. There you go. That's all you need to know. <laughs> he's right? like 1935 and he's got a mustache. And he's a fucking billionaire. I don't know, right? Like what, Multi-millionaire? Yeah. So, yes, yeah, people... I mean, that is the unfortunate Hollywood formula. Yes, it really is. One of the things that becomes clear is that he is not interested in having relationships with any of these women. He likes to chase, but as soon as he sleeps with them, he just like completely ignores them you know or, or tries to like treat it like they have a kind of a business relationship like he'll like bring him out in public to be seen with them mm. but then doesn't ever try to sleep with them again sometimes but it's like a who's who list of, of stars in the 30s right so he's seen with betty davis ava gardner uh katherine hepburn and him hedy lamar ginger rogers i mean just like a who's who's list uh, he proposes to several of these women who all tell him no because they're like no what yeah Are you treating me like that but he's just like swept up in the living the Hollywood lifestyle. Sure. On these dates, he's going with these starlets. This is the first time in the public eye that some of his more interesting habits start to come out. So as people start dating him, they realize that like every time they go out to dinner, he has the exact same thing for dinner every single night. Ooh. He has a New York strip steak, medium rare, a salad, and a side order of peas. Hmm. And the next night, New York strip steak, salad, side order of peas. Okay, sure, he likes what he likes. But then they notice that he actually carries with him this comb, a special comb with teeth, like a a hair comb, right? But it's it's custom made. The teeth are spaced out slightly wider than your average pea. And he actually combs and brushes his peas to separate the small peas from the large peas. And and then organizes his peas. No. By size uh-uh. on his plate every night. No. And then only eats the small peas. What? He doesn't want the big peas. So he, he combs them out, no. eats the salad, eats no. the small peas, eats the steak. Goes out next night, Ava Gardner on his arm, eats the steak, <laughs> eats the salad, eats the small peas. Quirky, right? If he's a guy writing the checks, people are like, oh, that's, that's eccentric, right? That's what you call somebody who's rich and doing something strange. But it starts to establish this pattern of like, maybe there's something more going on. Seems on the more extreme end of quirky. Oh, we we have not yet begun to the extreme end of quirky. So by 1940, he's pretty successful, and he buys a partial interest in this movie studio called RKO. As soon as he buys it, he fires 90% of the staff. What? How Uh, much of a stake did he buy in it? Well, so I think he bought not quite a controlling stake at the time, but... Enough to get managerial control. Okay. Or he had support of enough shareholders to get it. Sure. Fires 700 of the staff and then goes to a, immediately halts production on everything and goes to a six month investigation to find out who the communists are because he's convinced that there's going to be communists in this movie studio. Uh... Yeah, of course. Yay. Welcome to. 40s Hollywood. He's just his own House on American Activities Committee. Yeah, I mean, basically. by himself. He's just got like a... Yeah, because he can, right? He he's, He establishes his precedent that like everything's going to be like super anti-communist. And if it's unclear, he's going to make sure that there is a very clear anti-communist message by the time the movie's done. He's also involved in the war efforts. So he's like eventually going to become an arms manufacturer, like trying to manufacture actual planes and things for the military. But at the time... He, 
he, he's just shut, shutting down this movie studio, which all the other shareholders are really pissed at because he's just like, <laughs> sure. so they're starting to lose all this money. He's trying to help develop planes. So he's like, all right, I'm just going to, uh, he buys out the rest of the movie studio just to shut up the other shareholders so he can go and work on some planes for a little bit. Yikes. And then finishes the investigation, doesn't find any communists, mm. starts it back up, and then he gets bored with it and he sells it again immediately, makes a profit somehow on this. Uh, and then, well, now he has a no communist guarantee. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you save yourself six months worth of investigation by my studio. No yeah. communist guarantee. Clean house. <laughs> Clean house. Yeah, makes an extra million dollars on the sale right afterwards. Anyway, he walks away with at least $30 million profit after all this time. So he's been in Hollywood oh. for like 25 years, made an incredible amount of money in a short amount of time, doing something really glamorous while he's had you know been making money to keep up his plane and flying habit. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, just kind of cements himself as uh, a, su- a successful entrepreneur and somebody who's like big in the cultural landscape as well. So while he had been making this money, he, like I said, he had been feeding this flying habit. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a takeover more and more of his time kind of as he gets bored with Hollywood. So he had founded the Hughes Aircraft Company kind of early on as a division of Toolco. And he was basically taking profits from the tool business that was selling oil drill bits mm-hmm. and building planes mm-hmm. to try to, like, set flight records for himself, basically. He just loved it. Uh, as a kid, he'd been a tinkerer. He'd, like, been very mechanical. And he just, like, loved getting in the thick of it with the planes. As we've discussed in the past, turn of the century folk tend to be more tinkerish. Like, <laughs> yes, that's they're, true. They're not, they're not like the same impulse they had to do that with their hands, our child has to do on Minecraft. Exactly. Like it is yes. an impulse children have. Discover, build, create. It's just back then there was no YouTube. It was, it was gears. It was gears yeah. and steam engines, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. So he goes and begins kind of assembling planes. Uh, at one point, he wants to like learn flying better. So he, he goes and takes an assumed name. Ooh. And gets a job working as a baggage handler for American Airlines to like get inside the airport and like see behind the scenes. Somehow, doesn't thinks, he just have enough money to be like take me on a tour behind the scenes? You would think so, but for some reason he's like convinced this was the right way to go about getting this information. Undercover um, boss ahead of his time. Yeah, so he goes and he, he like gets this undercover boss style reconnaissance. He wow. figures out what he wants to do. He's building planes. He decides, like, okay, I think I'm going to fly around the world. Whoa. And so he builds the plane, right, that he's going to fly around the world with. It's, like, 1938 at this point, uh, and he's, like, making preparations. He is then trying to plan for how he's going to ensure his own safety on this flight because there's a lot of flights over the ocean. And so he gets the idea that he is going to shove the compartment of the plane, the part that's not up in the front where he is, full of ping pong balls. And the reason is because ping pong balls float. Yes. And he is just convinced that if the plane crashes but it's full of ping pong balls, there's no way the plane is going to sink into the ocean. Did he do the math? Was he like X number of ping pong balls to float the weight of a plane? You know, I don't think so. Okay. (laughs) Given how half-baked some of the other plans were i get right. i think this is more of an intuition sure and like i i feel like most correct me if i'm wrong i um don't know much about plane crashes but it seems like breaking your neck when you hit the water would probably kill you faster than like sinking in a plane yeah but what if you had a bunch of ping pong balls around you cushion you when you hit the water too <laughs> yeah huh? thought about that i have not i've never <laughs> before this moment ever considered floating myself in a plane with ping pong balls well now you have 
life-saving strategies here, folks. <laughs> he tries it. So he takes off from New York. He, like, leaves to go fly around the world. A few, And he, like, lands in Europe. He goes, lands mm-hmm. in Russia. A few stops in, he lands in one of these small airports, and somebody comes out to meet him and opens the door and, like, 5,000 penguin no! balls spill out of the plane. <laughs> he had not secured them in there. He just, <laughs> just had to open a certain door. And so... Until so it hits the water and that door opens. Yeah. Lose, curtains. I know, right? Didn't even think of that part. Got to at least wrap them up. I don't know. Anyway. Did he have a co-pilot or is he just like doing this by himself? I think he did have a co-pilot. This was not like a solo flight around okay. the world. He's not that talented. No, no. But uh, he does successfully not only fly around the world this attempt, but he does beat the all-time record. So he did it in only 91 hours at this stage. Whoa. Uh, yeah, which is, you know, three days and change. Huge, huge celebrity from this, right? Like, he'd already been mm. making movies, but now, like, he gets a big ticker tape parade mm. uh, in New York, and he hates it. And then he gets a ticker tape parade in Chicago, and he hates it. And he is just like... Why? Well, because he is kind of like a... Uh, he likes to be a behind-the-scenes guy, and all of a sudden, he's, like, thrust into the spotlight. Mm. And all of the anxieties that he'd had about, like, his health and, like, wanting things in a very particular way with his peas in the right order and size. Sure. Like, a ticker tape parade is, like, the opposite of peas in the right order. Uh, absolutely. It <laughs> sure yeah. And so... On the continuum of peas in the right order to ticker tape parade. Yes. So... <laughs> How uh, chaotic is your life? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're approaching a half a ticker tape parade at this point. Right. Yeah. Oh. Um, but he starts to really uh, make some questionable decisions and start to withdraw as soon as this public triumph is over. Mm. One of those is he goes and is working on this these military planes, mm-hmm. and he decides that he is going to be the test pilot oh. for the military planes. So he is in four plane crashes throughout oh his life. Oh, my God. Three of them he walks away from. Uh, which I guess is why he kept doing it. But on this fourth one after this, he was flying this military aircraft and lost all oil pressure, and the plane just, like, totally loses control. He He's flying in California still, so he's trying to land it on this L.A. golf course mm. and instead misses and hits a house in a, in a suburb, just, like, knocked out, breaks a ton of bones, cuts up his face, all this sure. stuff, gets dragged out, somehow survives. Do you find it... Any little tiny bit ironic that the reason the plane crashed was because of oil pressure? Uh, it's like full circle back to like. Yeah, he's, no, I hadn't thought about that. Right? He's trying to like loop this oil into the military, bring it all back, profit from it as oil companies are wont to do. And the oil's what gets him. That's what gets him. Yeah, uh, I had not, but that's poetic. Bangs up his head a bit as well. So a couple things happen in his hospital stay. One, uh, he's recovering. He hates it, hates how out of control he is. Just sitting still? Yeah, yeah, right. He's sitting still, he's got all these casts on, right? Like, it's the opposite of being able to, like, comb your peas in order. Has he tried uh, tapping back into his, like, 14-year-old self? <laughs> yeah, go catatonic, maybe, yeah. paralyzed? No, Not quite, not quite there yet. But he does decide that he wants buttons on his bed to be able to adjust the shape and position and roll it around. Mm-hmm. And so he calls in engineers and literally just builds the prototype for what we now think of as a hospital bed just to give himself control while he's sitting there recovering. Not but, mad at him for that. No, yeah, that's great. They do start giving him codeine for his injuries mm. and morphine. And so this does begin the point in his life where all of his pre-existing predilections for mental illness combined with new fresh head injuries now start to mix with drug use. Mm-hmm. And things really get iffy from here. Oh, how old is he now? So this is 1947. So he's about 40 years old. Yeah, 42. Got it. Wow, he's lived a life. Oh, yes. Yes, he has. At 40, he's done all of these things in the movies and the world around the flight and, you know, 
then the crashing. And so he decides after he's recovered, he needs a break from both his public life and the more dangerous <laughs> test flight life that he retreated to. Just a break? It seems like he should just end that altogether. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like that. Uh, so he decides to go home and watch some movies for a while. He goes and finds a section uh, of a kind of a big hotel in Beverly Hills uh, near his home. And he goes in to watch some movies, and he doesn't come out the next day. He just stays in the movie screening room mm. and keeps watching movies. By the next day, people are a little bit concerned, but he like starts writing notes on, on legal pad memos to be like, just bring me some food in here. I'm going to stay here. Sure. It goes on for a second day, and people are starting to get a little concerned because he's not even coming out to use the bathroom. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. So he's like, can you bring me some empty jars? Oh, no. Uh, and they're like, uh, what? <laughs> he's like, bring me some empty jars. And like, and, But he doesn't tell them this. He, he writes on the notepad. And so they do. And he just starts peeing in the jars. Sure. And then he's like really into this movie, apparently. Third day turns into a fourth day. And then he starts like writing to like, bring me this food. And also like, don't make eye contact with me when you come in here. And also don't speak to me unless you're spoken to. Ooh, so full Kanye. Yeah, so by the end of the fourth, fourth day, like, that he's, like, getting more controlling about this. He's just sitting in this dark room watching movies, the screening room, watching movies by himself. Goes into a fifth day, and he starts to take off his clothes. Oh. Um, so he's sitting in the room watching the movies. They're bringing him food. He's peeing in jars. Okay. Uh, so just I just want to be fair to the fact that that is probably something... A number of us have done, minus the jars. Okay, yes. Where this is like a five-day bender of just comfort movies and food. You know what? If I crashed a plane and broke all the bones in my body, I would probably also take a week or two in the dark to get my shit back together. Sure. Absolutely. I would also probably make eye contact with the DoorDash delivery person. (laughs) (laughs) Say thank you out loud. Not if you were naked. <laughs> yeah, that might be tough. That might be tough. Uh, so by the fifth day, he is now asking for food only only chocolate bars and milk. It's the only food that wow. he started to ask for. Really starting to rebel. Yeah, yeah. Chocolate bars and milk. If, if he has to take something from someone, he started to make sure that they hand it over to him while they're holding it in tissues, like mm-hmm. so their fingers don't touch it, and he doesn't touch it from them. He grabs it with tissues as well. Yeah. If he's grabbing anything out of a bag, it has to be held at a 45-degree angle so his hand doesn't touch the bag either. Mm. So it goes into six days. After the first seven days, right, he's kind of like set this up, does not speak to anybody, and then proceeds to stay in there for a second week. Okay. And then a third week. All right. Some regression happening here. And then it's a month. Oh, no. And then it's four months. Oh, wow. And he does not leave this room for four months, speak to a human, shower, eat anything besides chocolate and milk. No. Or pee in jars. What? Four months. I mean, that... Wow. That... For someone who is so concerned about hygiene, yes. that seems like, do you understand germs, sir? Yeah. So, so What the fuck? There's this very clear dichotomy where he is getting extremely controlling. He is asking for dozens and dozens of boxes of tissues uh, so that he can make sure that he's never coming into contact with anything outside of his body that isn't, like, protected by a tissue. But seems to have no concern about any germs originating from his own body. It's only external threats, right? Got it. It's only these outside things that he's worrying about coming to get him. He has no fear whatsoever about any of this filth, essentially, that is, like, all over his body now. He spends these four months in this dark room 
watching movies nearly 24 hours a day, eating very little, He's speaking high. to no one. He's got a lot of morphine. Presumably, yes, yeah, still has drugs. Got it. And after four months, emerges and is like, okay, uh, ready to ready to take on the world again. What? Is any of that public at the time? Are people like Howard Hughes trapped up in a hotel room? Not hasn't emerged, only chocolate bars and milk. No, none of this is <laughs> none of this is public at the time. Okay. Uh, I think people would be much more concerned. Um, I think there's rumors and things, but a lot of this stays very closely held. I, I imagine the public is not uh, yearning for Howard Hughes, knowing that he's crashed a plane. They're probably like, "Give the man some time. Yes. He's injured." Exactly. Um, and over the next ten years, he continues to like have business operations that provide government plane contracts. He he begins to invest in other airlines, right? So he diversifies his holdings. He begins to buy stakes in uh, TWA, for example. Mm. He gets married again a second time to Gene Peters in, uh, 10 years later in 1957. Okay. Uh, the marriage lasted for 14 years, mm. but behind the closed doors, she was kind of living a nightmare. When they got married and they were living in the same house for the first time, they had separate refrigerators because he refused to put any of his food in anybody else's refrigerator. No cross-contamination. Yeah. So there's this like very strange, again, like external germ threat that he was concerned about. But his personal hygiene was nightmarish. So she gave one example of she, she had to ask him to put tissues in between his toes. Oh. Because his toenails were so long. No, no. They would click along the ground. Oh! really loudly whenever he would walk. Oh, that makes me feel sick to my stomach. <laughs> yeah. Um, it may come as no surprise to you then that after a certain point, she asked to just live in a separate house from him. Oh, uh, my gosh. And they stayed married. I'm they, sure in California, that's communal property. He's yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so she just lived in a separate house and they only saw each other a few times a year. But he... Planned her entire life for her, right? She had very little control over her day-to-day -day activities. He he mainly communicated to her through memos, like written memos, like his staff. And in now in his, in his like papers, there are hundreds of thousands of these memos that he's writing to her about how what she should do with her day, how she should spend her time. What? Yeah, I mean, just like, yeah, uh, you know, voluminous and very very controlling. The only upside is that she didn't have to actually interact with him at his worst. Sure. So he is he is full on his mother at this point. I mean, yes, he is. He has assumed all of the same behaviors that she exerted over him, over his wife. And it seems like she's yeah. staying married to him, uh, although trying to distance herself as much as she can in practice without saying a peep publicly. So none of this comes out until well into the future. But she does Ooh. not mention any of this to anybody outside of their state. Wow. So a year later, after they've been married and he has bought up some airlines and begun to reintegrate with his business life, he decided he wanted to watch some more movies. So he, again, rented out a film studio, and it quickly spun out of control. He continued to indulge in the same kind of behaviors as he had before. He had stock in TWA, but because of a management dispute, he was essentially locked up and, and forced to sell it. But when he had, was forced to sell it, he sold it for $500 million, which is equivalent to like f almost $4.5 billion today. So To whom? To other stockhold other shareholders in the company. What the fuck? So now this Hollywood mogul who, right, like is, is suffering privately, right, all of a sudden becomes the richest person in America. 
And one of the things wow. he does is he, not get a psychiatrist. <laughs> no, he he tries to move around a lot because it turns out that if he lived in hotels enough of the time, he could avoid claiming residency in any one state and use that essentially as a tax shelter <laughs> so that he wouldn't pay income tax any one place. I mean, especially with California, like you're saying, right? Like high tax. He, he's trying to move around. Uh, and so he goes, and in 1966, Thanksgiving, he rents out the top two floors of the Desert Inn Hotel in Las Vegas. He liked it so much, he stayed from Thanksgiving all the way through Christmas. The hotel, though, uh, was not super happy about this, because usually those were the high roller suites, and mm -hmm. they wanted them to be available for gamblers, so the yeah, yeah, high yeah. rollers <laughs> would come in and they could give them away. He got really comfortable, so he was like, well, no, I think I'm going to stay. Uh, so he bought the hotel. Of course. Yeah, of right? Of course he did. He bought the hotel so he could keep it. But now he's living in this hotel suite. And again, a lot of the same controlling behaviors, right? Like wearing no clothes, like, you know, refusing to touch anything that anybody else has touched. He is in his room and there's a very annoying neon sign on a hotel across the street at the Sands Hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he bought that hotel as well so he could he turn off the sign. He just close the curtains? It was easier to buy the hotel. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, so, yeah, he did. And he continued to just, like, sit in there and watch movies. Now, at this point in the hotel room, he was watching movies and he was watching them on TV because he didn't have, like, the full screening set up. Mm -hmm. uh, and the station, uh, KLAS in Las Vegas, wasn't playing the movies that he wanted. So, so he, he bought it. He bought the television <laughs> station. So he said, okay, you have to play movies 24 hours a day. Here's the movies you're going to play. And, and they did. They started playing 20, 24 hours a day. They started playing movies, and they just played whatever he wanted. What? Because it was easier for him to just buy the television station than to go and, like, get a movie projector. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That seems wild. Just buy a theater. Yeah. Uh, Is this he, like the 50s? Are we in the 50s by now? Yes. So we okay. are actually, uh, we are in 1966. Okay. So this is like Frank Sinatra time in Las Vegas. Yes. There's like movies, the mob, like it is the height of glamour yes. in Las Vegas. And he at the time, not only had he bought up this hotel and the hotel across the street, but he now starts to buy up and buys up most of the undeveloped land in Las Vegas. Whoa. So there's going to, I mean, he's buying desert at the time, right? But he's taking this money he's made from the TWA sale and now he's invested in what's going to be very, very expensive real estate, very near future. Are the hotels making money? I imagine that he's making a profit off of those also. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he's, he's only taken... losing money on his own suite. Yeah, right? He, exactly. He's taken this parent company, mm -hmm. like literally his parents, but also then like becomes a holding <laughs> company for everything else sure. and started to just buy up all of these random ass things. And like it's all in under the same umbrella. But yeah. again, like it, it is doing whatever he wants to suit him. And uh, it, it's inexplicably just like making money hand over fist. Right. You know, his lawyers are just gobsmacked every time he's like, oh, yeah, write oh, this contract. Yes. <laughs> so he is in this hotel room um, at one point, he sees this movie. It's a 1968 film called Ice Station Zebra. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it's about this polar expedition. No, don't tell me. Let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, and he just loves it. So in a, in a departure from his usual movie watching, he goes and actually gets a projector sent in mm. and has this movie. And then over the next few months, proceeds to watch this movie 150 times. Over and over and over again. Just like, can you imagine anybody watching a movie or show that many times? Don't be rude. Over, what do Don't you, be rude. 
like the office or don't anything be rude. like that. <laughs> we all have our comforts. <laughs> 150 times, though. The only difference is you've not yet done it naked while refusing to make eye contact. It's true. It's true. You know what? Don't threaten me with a good time. That's level up material. Okay. Okay. Next fair. step. Well, okay. So, but the, for the staff, this becomes harder and harder to deal with because at this stage, if you're a member of his staff, he has written through these memos and like legal pad things, like this gigantic handbook of procedures Mm-mm. that you have to follow for every step of every part of the routine. So he would sit in this room and like do business over the phone, like walking around totally naked, right? <laughs> Peeing in jars or whatever. But then... I feel like he probably had a bathroom in his suite. Oh, that's true. Good point. In the suite, you probably had a bathroom. Yeah. But then... It, if he was uh, asking for canned peaches one day, for example, right? There's like a, a two-page process where first the person had to disinfect the can. They had to wash it and scrub it and then wash it again. Then the peaches had to be poured into a bowl that no one had touched. Then that bowl had to be carried in with paper towels between your hands and the bowl to put it in. And then like several layers of paper towels had to be used like pull everything out, right? Like all of these different compulsive thing started to like bleed out into what he required of everybody else around him. So he had a hearing aid in a bathroom cabinet, right? His hearing aid started to go. And so before he it could crash be... enough planes, and yeah, it turns out happen. enough head injuries, right? Uh, so before it could be removed, the staff had to use between six and eight new tissues as a barrier when turning the bathroom doorknob. Then they had to throw away those tissues, use six to eight new tissues for opening the cabinet, and then use those to remove a new bar of soap. Then they had to wash their hands with the new soap Use six to eight new tissues to reopen the cabinet door and remove the hearing aid. Then the hearing aid, which was in a sealed envelope, had to then be removed with both hands with 15 tissues in each hand from there. Just go pick up your own fucking hearing aid, buddy. Yeah, I mean, if you got enough money, what you see is like all of the deepest insecurities, compulsive behaviors just get like projected out onto every single person around him, indulging like the worst, least healthy coping mechanisms he has. Sure. Eventually, towards the end of his life, he does travel to other places he owns on different islands, not just in Las Vegas. And returning from one of them, he dies on April 5th, 1976, aboard an aircraft, a Learjet, trying to get back to Houston for medical treatment. Ooh, for what? Uh, kidney failure, I believe. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's a painful way to die. Yeah, it's, it's not great. No. Okay, uh, where's the blimp? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we just went through his whole life, and I didn't hear a fucking thing about him. Oh, yeah. So, remember when he was making movies? Oh, vividly. That was like 30 minutes ago. His first three were successful. Okay. He had some other ones later that were nominated. Okay. One of the ones that he was fighting with the censors about, not Scarface, one of the other ones, mm-hmm. he was one of the first people that used a blimp to promote it. Oh. So it was written on a blimp somewhere. Again, no reason you should have him associated <laughs> yeah, with a blimp. I don't know. That's it. Wow. That's it. That's a real hero of this story. <laughs> the blimp, I'm yes. doubling down on it. There, so one of, there's a question about like why Howard Hughes is uh, a figure in popular culture and like mm-hmm. why to a certain set of people like he seems appealing. One, there's a lot of potential comparisons with, say, the... He could be the Elon Musk of his day, right? I've almost made that comparison yeah. multiple times throughout this he episode. He was born rich, 
right? Yeah. Super socially awkward, dated a, a high profile set of like Hollywood people and celebrities, mm-hmm. uh, obsessed with aviation or space flight or whatever you want sure. to call it, right? Like didn't seem to have super healthy coping mechanisms, <laughs> but successful entrepreneur nonetheless, right? Like everything mm-hmm. he's touches is cur- currently, at least for Elon Musk, seems to be going well. But I mean, like for film buffs in particular, right? He has this very uh, niche appeal. One historian uh, wrote in the new biographical dictionary of film uh, that for especially male fans, they were fascinated by Hughes' quote because he lived out the guiltiest adolescent fantasies. He's the fan who walks in off the street, makes movies, bossed around a studio, was crazy and hopeful enough to think of having all of the movie stars of his day and did. Dated them, took them with him, and did what every shy, lonely moviegoer dreams of, end quote. Despite that, <laughs> despite the fact that uh, at the time of his death, he controlled, he had controlled TWA, the movie studio RKO, Air West, and multiple billion-dollar businesses, and despite the fact that he owned six casinos and most of the undeveloped land in Las Vegas, uh, and despite the fact that his wealth was estimated to be around worth around about $12 billion in today's dollars, which at the time, again, was like record-shattering, Howard Hughes, still not my hero. Yeah, I think it's going to be the the pea comb for me. I think that's why that's, that's, <laughs> pea, that's where I it's stopped. It's not the pea jar. Like no, the pea jar seems like a the, bigger deal. Yeah, it's the pea comb, the P E A comb. <laughs> yeah, the pea jars. I kind of feel like okay, this man was just very depressed, and I'm not going to judge someone who's very depressed. Sure, sure. And I understand compulsivity, but. The fact that he would belabor the separation of peas on multiple dates with Hollywood starlets and then still convince them to sleep with him <laughs> and then ghost them, that's it's unacceptable to me. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm just trying to think, like, if you've got the peas, they've all been mixed up and cooked together. Like, Smaller ones are I are sweeter. They're, like, younger. Seriously? I think so. Or maybe wow. it's the opposite. You don't like peas. I don't. I'm I love peas, but I'm indifferent to their size. Um, I I would say like as they get larger, they do have a slightly different texture, but they don't taste much different. No, nah, you, you just don't have the discerning palate. Of Howard <laughs> Hughes. I do not have the discerning palate of someone who, who will sit in a room for four months and only eat, and can only eat chocolate bars. No, uh, my mother let me get dirty when I was yes. a child. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Did not care about the number of diseases I contracted. <laughs> Bring them all home. That's how you build an immune system. If our listeners are interested in further building their immune system, where can they hear more of us? Oh, is that what we do now? We just <laughs> yes. dole out immune system advice? Uh, wear two masks, wash your hands. They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod on Instagram and Twitter and at our website, meetyourheroespodcast.com, where there's a lovely little form and you can submit heroes for us to research. Yeah, appreciate the feedback. Always good to hear. One hero that we get recommended to us a lot, just as an FYI, that we have done some research into is Da Vinci. And what we can say is he was a weird dude, but he doesn't cross a lot of like, oh, terrible, uncomfortable thresholds. So he's like much further down our list of folks we'll feature. He is interesting in the way that Pythagoras is interesting, 
but cooler. Um, just so you know, like if you recommend DaVinci, I'm gonna it's keep gonna, DaVinci in my back pocket. It's gonna be a couple months or a few years, yeah. Between now and then, though, you can rate and review our podcast yes. and share it with yes. your family and friends. <laughs> and until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.